Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. Uh, today is the anniversary, the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So we obviously want to uh, give our due respects to those uh, those folks who gave their lives in the defense of American liberty. But uh, and I have two other guys who I'd like to talk about American liberty on a variety of different levels. <laughs> and that okay, is I love that segue. You like that segue? I had to figure out. Like kind of forced. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Whatever happens, you know whatever works. You know on a, on a uh, Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> but on the podcast with me is my usual um, duo of tech journalists. That's Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. Uh, Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Twice, U.S. News, and Investopedia. And not on the call today because he's got a conflict with John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. But guys, welcome to the podcast on a Tuesday afternoon. How are you? Glorious. Rob, how was your trip to, uh, we're going to talk about a Qualcomm-specific topic, yes. how was your uh, return from uh, the, you had a long trip, Hawaii to Washington. Yes, I spent a lot of time in airplanes the last week. It was great. I learned a lot. Came home with this nice uh, tiki mug. <laughs> Sorry, there's nothing in it right now. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of stuff to talk about from that. You know what's going to be interesting about that? I, I bet that Tiki Mud is not going to influence in any way, shape, or form whatever opinion you have on that, what you're going to talk about that's Qualcomm related. Right? Well, honestly, the build quality is not the best. It's gotten a few chips on the base, so uh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. How well, much you that- pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm sure in this next column, uh, Stuart, Closure that he that he got this, this freebie at the Qualcomm event. Am I correct, uh, Rob? Uh, you know that a couple of tote bags, uh, a T-shirt. Basically, whenever I can actually have a meal for the readers again, I've got a lot of free crap to give away to these folks. <laughs> don't ask me when that will be. I keep having piece computer user groups say we're going to have to do it by Zoom this time again. I'm still a little bit nervous about CES, but that's another topic. I'm I'm, I'm getting uh, the you know heebie-jeebie feedback from different companies whether they're really going to be there or not. So that's for another podcast. But let's uh, let's bring up about I want to I want to tee up today, and that is and you know a story you brought this one up and everybody's kind of talking about this Disney Plus documentary, The Beatles. It certainly got a lot of attention, and um, you know they haven't done one on Barry Manilow, but I'm waiting for that to, to happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost saying that half in jest, but you know it's obviously a very popular, um, uh, popular um, piece of content that a lot of folks are watching. Uh, but uh, you brought up the topic of whether they kind of, and I'm using the phrase very delicately, did they screw up the document, the document in terms of the way it was presented, in terms of the way they executed. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let me get your uh, your perspective on that. Well, I'm dying to know what kind of viewership it had and what kind of subscriber growth they got out of it. But my great fear, and strictly from a business point of view, not from the fact that I love the document, I'm already watching it my second time, um, is that 
whether or not this is going to, whether or not they screwed up in the presentation of it. Now, I have always that has expressed here being a big fan of releasing all the episodes of a series at one time, so I could decide when I watch them. But given that this is a one-time event, and given that people can tune in, pay for, a, get a free trial, or get a month, one month's worth, watch it, and then drop it, um, I just didn't understand why Disney didn't create a eight-part, one-episode-a-week series to, A, cut down on the churn, and to build, I don't know, not excitement, I don't think it needed any more built-in excitement necessarily, um, but to try to stretch it out and to pick up those users or subscribers, those new subscribers who might otherwise just pick up Disney Plus for the time it takes them to watch it and then to drop it again. My guess is, and I'll ask Rob to chime in on this, my guess is when they do the modeling of this, that, you know, a one-time charge just to watch the documentary versus, you know, just let people do the churn and burn thing where they, you know, they sign up. And, yeah, there's probably a lot of people that dropped it, you know, during the, during the free trial. Uh, but the remaining people who did sign up probably exceeds the number of people they think would have paid for it separately in a one-off. But I could be wrong about that but it's an interesting well and the, and, the, and the other part of it is that disney i don't know that they came in quote unquote late necessarily because obviously this was a, well not obviously people don't know it was originally intended to be a two-hour theatrical film and then then they decided to do a, a much longer thing so it may have been peter jackson's decision on editing and how he edited that he didn't want it to be anything other than it was him being the man of the bloated trivial um, um trilogies um, but it just seemed to be a missed opportunity for Disney, which has been having trouble getting new subscribers. Once everybody rushed in, it sort of just sort of just sat there once they had their sort of built-in audience. And this was an opportunity to sort of grow their audience and hopefully hold on to them. And I think I just thought that they sort of missed an opportunity by not stretching this out a little more. Rob, your thoughts? So I have to confess, first of all, I have not seen it at all. It is a rather long production and, you know, not really of my generation per se. Uh, but it's, wow. It's, wow, wow, wow. I've been, I've been waiting all day to say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, seven, seven, what is it? Seven, eight hours. That's a lot to take in. About seven and a half hours. Yeah. Yes. It, even by Peter Jackson standards. Uh, I will say if Disney Plus is smart, shouldn't they be dropping a new episode? I guess the next season of the Mandalorian just in time to catch the people who signed up to watch the Beatles and yes. start that treadmill. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think Disney plus most video streaming services should have the problems that they're having, which are, you know, they've had huge growth and maybe now it's plateauing a little bit, but you know, they're a video service that's actually gaining subscribers, which is not the case certainly for any legacy pay TV cable or satellite service and even a lot of uh, multi-channel services uh, you know they're, they're just stuck on the the treadmill of rate hikes because the cost of other people's content keeps going up Disney plus doesn't have that problem but you know what and I, I'd like to get uh, Stuart to, th uh, to comment on this I suspect that there is something you know around the notion television that has, has done this for years the whole idea around event, some type of, of event anchor that's so special from a content standpoint that it forces you to watch it in an extended period of time. 
And I think this Beatles documentary, although from a demographic standpoint, thank you for reminding how old we are, Rob. I really do appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> it, it does appeal to face. The Beatles are we going to get an REM or a U2 documentary? That's what I want to know. Well, a Beatles or Barry Manilow documentary would appeal to a very specific type of type of demographic. And uh, but I do believe that you know that you'll start to see other I think streaming services kind of. Uh, they'll kind of coalesce around every year in their own special space where they play. There's such something that's so important, such so significant that if you're not subscribing to the services, you, you know, you're you're compelled to uh, subscribe to it. Though I don't know, you know, it's hard to do whether it's a, some type of live action sports thing, which is obviously television is known for, or whether it's a piece of content that just uh, um, uh, drives people. I mean, in the old days, now I'm dating myself. Look at this, what the Sopranos did for HBO. I mean, not that HBO wasn't on the map, but let's face it: there's HBO picked up a lot of subscribers over the years because of the fact that they have the, the Sopranos stuff friendship. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I mean, I think the Sopranos is a different case, and Sex in the City is a different case for HBO. And the same thing with a show that that sort of anchored or really blew up some of the other networks is that there is no going to be a second season of this. Of, of Get Back unless Peter Jackson decides to put together a video version of Let It Be. And since Rob hasn't seen it yet, they, there are very few versions. Break up or something at the end. Say that again? Don't tell me the band breaks up at the end of this. I, I, <laughs> spoiler alert! Um, but, they, but the only other opportunity is to, to release some sort of video album because they have complete takes. And for some reason, this as long as it is, they only have one or two songs that are complete takes of songs that are actually appeared on the album. And they have all the footage of all the complete takes for that album with the exception of Across the Universe. So there may be, but other than that, there really is no follow-up season. So there's nothing to, it's not an anchor. And the way The Sopranos was. The Sopranos was an anchor. You can come back and oh, we've got season two of The Sopranos or season two of Sex in the City or, you know, or whatever it happened to have been on whatever the channel it is or The Mandalorian for Disney+. Plus. I, I, I have read that Disney is investing a lot heavier now in original content because you can only exist on pre-existing content for so long when you're battling against Netflix and Amazon and Apple. Um, but it is. But I don't think that Get Back is a um, an anchor the way that The Sopranos was for HBO, simply because there's no second season, and that's why I was a little surprised that they didn't try to stretch it out. So maybe midway through um, episode four of Get Back, oh, now we're starting starting season three of WandaVision or season two of Mandalorian or or whatever, what have you. Um, it, it just seems to me that considering, and I, not that I disagree with Rob, but I've been on Twitter and there's a lot of 20 somethings watching this. And it's just a little surprising to me that Disney didn't try to use it as a fish hook to try to grab other users who might otherwise decide, all right, I've watched this, I'll now cancel it. The other thought I had was that if other streamers are going to do something like that, maybe there are new business models to be had. Since this is a one-off event and people don't want to subscribe, maybe some of these streaming channels create a one-time pay-per-view kind of thing. Sign into Disney Plus. We will let you watch this thing and one thing only. And you pay us, you know, you know, not an exorbitant fee, but a higher than a simply monthly fee. So if you want to watch this and this is all you want to watch, 1995. 
you know, or what is still cheaper than a movie. And you probably get a lot more with, and nobody kick in the back of your chair. So I, I, I don't think this is the same thing as an anchor the way The Sopranos was. So, uh, Rob, well, I want to get Rob to just kind of uh, take us to the next topic here. Is that, and, and Rob, I know that you're a big Sex and the City fan. I know that. We watch it all the time. Yeah. Coming yeah. back. I can't wait till they do a Golden Girls version of Sex and the City. With it, it, it's it's starting in about a week. I know, I know. True, true. Uh, and, and it was a sensation. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, there the, there was a certain demographic that could not be away from the TV. I mm -hmm. think it was on Sunday night, if I recall. But Rob, do you think that the the um, the, uh, the, the this document uh, uh, documentary and all the excitement is created? Do you think it will be a boost for all streaming services like? Uh, like maybe uh... no, because it is a one-time thing. You know, you want things to keep people coming back. I think when you know, an early history of Disney Plus is written, it will be things like The Mandalorian, which you know, actually stuck to a traditional uh, broadcast model. Oh, it's Friday, we can watch the next episode, and you know that it gets habitual viewing, which is kind of hard to do in a streaming era. And to the extent, and obviously, that they're now going to strip mine every possible vein of content you can get in the Star Wars universe. I, I can't even keep track of how many spinoff series they're working on. And of course, they have so many other properties they can, you know, my, my brother has got me into watching uh, Hawkeye. So that's that's a good one there as well if you're into the, the MCU. Uh, so yeah, one-off things, they can get a lot of conversation, drive a lot of interest. But in terms of what, what gets people to sign up, and, you know, put that icon on the first home screen of their phone or tablet. And, you know, it's not something you watch once and then you're presumably done with, although maybe it merits repeated viewing, but things that keep you coming back week after week. Well, I'll also be waiting for the, uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll get uh, Stephen Sondheim documentary. I, could pro I would probably watch that since the man. You was know, our friend David Pogue, I'm sure he would be happy to contribute to that. He wrote a very uh, beautiful tribute to his friend, Bob. But uh, what a great sense of humor Sondheim had. Did, 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 did Pogue know Sondheim? Sondheim? Yeah, they, they collaborate on a lot of stuff. I didn't actually know this until seeing his Facebook post, I, and I, I guess I, he wrote I, up a I, version of that. Well, that. I did not know that. I did not know that. that, that man of many talents. He was. He was. And, uh, I, just, I'm just going to say this because I, I, I heard this the other day. I've got the Broadway satellite channel in my car on, on XN Radio, and they, they replayed an a interview with him. And Hal Prince, one of the great greatest all around, one of the great um, directors and producers in the last 50 years in the theater, uh, an interview that Sondheim and Prince did back in 1969, right after Hair came out, and and uh, it was very apparent that Sondheim was not a big fan of Hair, and he was and he was not a, he didn't think that rock and roll would ever play a significant role in future Broadway scores. He just thought it was kind of a one a one off type of thing. I thought that was fascinating. I had to say that because I thought it was aside there. But let's go to uh, the next topic, and this is going to go right to your uh, visit and, and your your visit, your your boondoggle My in son. Hawaii. Uh, and, and, and I'm hey, there's, there's good places for boondoggles, and there's bad places uh, for boondoggles. Hawaii is not a bad place for boondoggle, but they did announce always on camera um, vision. Uh, for their smartphones. Now you were there. You heard the pitches and the presentations. I am, imagine this to me, without knowing a whole lot beyond some of the coverage that I read about it. Seems like there's a lot of privacy concerns that I would have. But let's talk, talk oh, yes. about what the vision is and uh, 
I'll let you jump into it, Rob. So the always on camera is a part of the sales pitch Qualcomm made at its Snapdragon Tech Summit on the Big Island of Hawaii. I have to note up front, they did cover travel costs, airfare and lodging for myself and most of the other reporters and analysts who were there. That said, I did not come away too impressed with this. The idea is that a phone that is built on the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1 chipset will always have the front camera on, but not in the sense that it is buffering video or you know capturing a picture every 10 seconds or whatever. In the sense that uh, this lockdown secure enclave called the Qualcomm Sensing Hub will be checking the camera just to see if it detects a face. And what could it do with that information? If it sees that you know your face is in front of the the phone, the, the example they gave was if you're working on a recipe and you, know, you don't want to actually touch the phone because your hands are full of flour or butter or oil or whatever, <laughs> it'll just stay unlocked for you, which is something Samsung did years ago. They had smart stay, if any of y'all remember that. Another scenario they outlined is if it detects a face appearing over your head, like in the background, oh, somebody's trying to shoulder surf, let's blank the screen. The third one they outlined was if it sees a face alongside you, Either you've grown a second head or you're trying to show what's on your phone to somebody else so it'll just suppress the notifications. And, you know, I sort of get what they're trying to do, but this seems like a, an overreach for such a limited number of scenarios. And they did try to make it very plain how limited this is. They said the, the, the sensing hub doesn't have any real memory, so it can't store anything. So while it may be a lidless eye, it's also one with no memory attached, no recollection at all. They didn't share until afterwards, after the story ran in Fast Company, that, oh, this is also only a 640 by 480 picture. Um, another thing they haven't really done, I did not actually see this demoed, which was weird. They did have a version of this for laptops that I got to see later on, where I could see that this was just showing like a silhouette. But in general, and, and the other point two different analysts made to me separately, Ross Rubin and Carolina Milanese, was that always on camera isn't even the most accurate name. Uh, Carolina suggested uh, always ready, and Ross suggests uh, suggested I think always active, which at least suggests that you know it's looking out for you rather than it's always looking at you. Uh, and all this said, we may never actually see it. This is going to be up to phone vendors to decide: do they want to include this? If they do, is it on by default? If it's on by default, what sort of uh, you know out of the box experience greets the customer to say? Do you want to use this feature? Right. And it, overall re reaction is, you know, no thanks. Yeah, you know, my reaction to it, just based on what I've read so far and your your characterization of it, kind of sounds like a trial balloon. You know, maybe Qualcomm was trying to, hey, let's see if this sticks. Let's get the, the reaction of some reporters and analysts at the event. It sounds like it was not exactly full-throated optimism. Um, but I don't no. know. I'm not going to say the trial balloon was, a, you could say, a Led Zeppelin. But, um, yeah, I, part of me wonders, you know, I would love to see if they had any notes from the meetings where somebody said, what if we could keep the front camera always on? <laughs> Imagine, I'm just spitballing here. How, what, what could we do with that? Because those, you know, I think most people would probably say, I can just deal with the fact that, you know, yes, I have to unlock my phone in the middle of cooking or oh, somebody might see that, uh, you know, I'm watching these three dorks talk about technology on this podcast, 
and I'm watching it in the middle of the airport and everyone now knows my bad taste in, in video podcasts. Most people I don't think are seeing those as problems that need to be solved before, you know, all the other everyday annoyances we have with our phones. So, so what's your thoughts, Chris? This kind of sounds like a problem. It looks like a technology looking for a problem to solve. I don't, my point of view on this is almost syntactical. This is possibly the worst or the most stupidest self-goal in terms of terminology I've run across since defund the police. This is just <laughs> such a stupid name. As soon as you say always on camera, where did you think people's minds were going to go? Number one. Number two, even if that's what it is, it's a face sensor. There's one on the iPhone. I pick up the iPhone or any of these phones. It does face ID. I don't think of it being always on or not. I look at the phone. It knows it's me. Why did they? And the fact that the VP kept saying always on camera, that's not what it is. When you say your camera is on, the implication is it's recording. And that's not what this does. And how Qualcomm stuck its head up its tech balloon behind and started calling it an, an always on camera just knocked me out once I read it was because you know the first stories are oh this is a horrible thing the camera's always do I want to be recorded that's not, not anything what this is and this is all Qualcomm's fault for calling it an always on camera which is what it is not it's a face sensor that's it it's an advanced sensor with some advanced AI. And if they had stuck with that, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Well, uh, you know, like, what, what can I say, Stuart? Thank you for that low-key uh, response. Yeah, oh, but, but, I don't have an opinion. No, no but <laughs> here's the thing, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit, something that's a, a, bit, um, a bit similar to this when we get to the uh, Microsoft um, Chrome thing we're going to talk about in, in a second. You know, Technology companies do this from time to time. They, they come across something that's kind of cool, kind of interesting. And by the way, Rob, the fact that it's only six, um, it's low resolution doesn't make me feel a lot better, <laughs> honestly. The res I mean, the fact that they, 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 they reiterated that a few times seems like they were trying, well, maybe it's a privacy issue, but it's, low re it's a low resolution privacy issue. That doesn't make me feel a lot yeah. better. I, I can't fathom myself. I mean, did people laugh when they hear that? I mean, when it was being presented, with, were people chuckling, saying, you've got to be kidding me? Uh, not so much chuckling, but I can definitely tell you the reaction, even in the, the sort of embargoed preview, the, the questions right afterwards were really skeptical. Like, yeah, really? <laughs> can you walk me through this one more time? Well, let's hit the next topic because obviously this one, I, I have a feeling <laughs> I don't have people to react here. Uh, let's talk about, you know, and, and I'm, I'm being a bit the melodramatic here, Microsoft playing dirty. And I did notice by this, this myself is that Windows 11 will prompt you to stop you from downloading Chrome. I mean, you can still download it, of course, but you have to overcome, you know, a couple of dialogue boxes. And, you know, that, uh, you know, Chrome is incredibly popular. You know, Edge, obviously, because Edge comes with, with, with uh, the new Edge comes with Windows 11. It's quite popular as well because it's embedded. But, you know, Stuart, what is your quick take on, you know, Microsoft, you know, being very proactive in trying to stop people from downloading Chrome? Do you have any thoughts on that? This is almost worse than the always on camera thing. I mean, again, this is another self goal. Has there is there no corporate memory at Microsoft when they got 
hit by the Justice Department over tying Explorer and cutting out Netscape from Windows. I mean, it's like, how short is your memory? We are not talking about this. Is It's a long time ago. Now, what they're really doing, and I think they've sort of crept up to the edge without actually going over the legal line, because they're not really trying to stop you. It's more like discouragement. Oh, we have something. It's essentially the messages that you get are, Oh, this we're we're at, um, the, our browser is mu it's built on the same platform. It's much better than Chrome. You really don't want Chrome. It's not saying don't do it. It's not stopping you. It's just sort of saying, well, you know, we're just as good, if not better. And trust us, not Google. You know, so it's but the fact that Microsoft got raked over the the, the legal coals for this once already. It's, again, this is just such a self-goal. self, self goal. No, I, I'm surprised as well, honestly. You know, this falls into the department of when they were t talking about this eight months ago before they implemented this. I mean, what could have I, – I, the old Microsoft, I'm sure, would, would not have gone as far. This, this, this just seems to me a very, very aggressive stance. Again, they're still, I guess, an inch above the line because they're not, they are not stopping people. But I think there's a lot of ways they could have educated people on, hey, you know, before you download Chrome, let me talk, let me force you to watch a video for three minutes that shows you how wonderful <laughs> Edge is, you know, but, but by, by no means don't. don't it's just so ham-fisted. Rob, 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 what do you think, Rob? It's the, I'm thinking of that line from Spinal Tap. There's a fine line between clever and stupid. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> like Microsoft, this is not like the days of Internet Explorer and that, Edge is actually a legitimately good browser. You know, it has that great compatibility because it is built on the same Chromium engine as Chrome, yes. but it has built-in privacy protection that Chrome does not offer and really can't offer given Microsoft Microsoft Google's ad business. And it's uh, not they've the added memory hog that Chrome is. Chrome is a big memory hog. Yeah, and thoughtful features like vertical tabs, you know, a new way to do the interface, which makes sense for a lot of people. Uh, you know, the finding if there are coupons for something you're shopping for, that's a, that's a good idea. That's creative. Uh, and the fact that they have versions of this for iOS, for Android, for Mac OS. And so you can synchronize your browsing between all those three. They've got a good sales pitch, so they don't need to get in with this heavy handed stuff, which is just silly. Like on the one hand, they're saying Chrome is so 2008. And the other hand, they're saying we're built on the same stuff as Chrome, the same 2008 <laughs> stuff. Which one is it? Microsoft. Um, and, you know, I want to see more competition in browsers. It's not healthy that so much of the market, although I think it's like 69, 70% Chrome, it's not as bad as when it was 93 or 95%, i.e., I think competition is good. I want to make sure that sites, you know, have to make sure they look good in all the major browsers. And Microsoft is realistically much better positioned to bring that competition than Mozilla is with Firefox. But th this this is a, it's a clumsy, ham-handed, own goal, oafish way to go about it. Well, that's that's two ham-fisted ideas in a row, that, uh, <laughs> which I don't think we've ever had in the podcast. They're from companies who should know better. Right. They, they should have they, the institutional memory. They should they should know better. Let, let's go to the fourth topic here. This is kind of interesting to me. Uh, interesting to me. I'm sure it's interesting to you guys. You know, Apple is actually taking Russian Accord over the over the App Store. I mean, to me, the interesting thing is is um, whether Apple will give in. You know, do they kind of welcome our business is so important in Russia? You know, we don't want to run afoul of the Russian government. 
yada yada yada. But uh, what, what's your thoughts, Rob? Do you do you do you, uh, do you think Apple will stick to its guns, or do you think they 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 just scream uncle at some point, saying, "Okay, we get we give up. We'll let us." So many other governments are working this angle, and you know, in, in, like in general, in any case of a dispute between Russia and an American technology company, I want the Russian Federation to lose. It is run by a tyrannical autocrat who is ripping off his people and destroying their future through rampant corruption and just collection of power for no actual benefit. They're terrible people. And the fact that in this case, you know, it is true that it's not good for competition that Apple gets to take this cut of every in-app digital transaction and then forbid app developers from telling other people about it. Um, but you know, that, that case is being brought elsewhere. There was that ruling in, in the Fortnite case saying, and I guess Apple saying that it will allow at least a, a link out to an outside payment method. That was the case in Japan. I would much rather, if Apple's going to send lawyers to do battle in Moscow, how about the fact that they're forced to remove certain apps that the Russian government doesn't like, whether it's VPNs or Alexei Navalny's app to help people coordinate their voting? Um, that is a, a much more problematic use of the Russian government's power over American tech companies. Stuart? Well, I think this is an indicative of a much larger issue. Just on a macro issue, the fact that Apple thinks it's going to win in Russian court just boggles my mind. <laughs> Again, this is the third big company that is just tripping over itself. Really, you're going to win a legal battle in Russian court over what the Russians want you to do. Okay, but I think this is a, a much larger problem that has been going on with extreme nationalism in a lot of countries. I mean, China, India, a lot of these companies are imposing their own rules on American tech companies. And they're, it, it's a death by a thousand cuts because the internet, the internet was supposed to be this global thing that was this uh, uh, supposed to be all inclusive, but as individual countries countries begin to exert their own level of control. Now, I'm not saying that that's all a bad thing either, because obviously these American tech companies need to be controlled in some way. But I, I think this is going to be a give and take that's going to require a much broader set of solutions than individual companies fighting individual policies in individual yeah. countries. And I think that that the tech companies or the UN or you uh, can or somebody is going to have to step in and, and, and set the rules of the operating road that governments cannot come in and cut off the internet just because they feel like it. Um, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think this is just one part of a much larger issue that's growing larger and larger as because as more tech companies begin to fall into place with whatever local dictatorship happens to be in place, it's going to empower more pettier dictators to try to do the same thing. And that way lies madness. And, and so I think this is a growing problem that I don't think the tech uh, community has gotten anywhere near their heads around. Yeah, just to kind of wrap a bow on this, you know, what scares me is, I agree with what both of you guys are saying, but what, what scares me is that if um, Apple gives in for whatever reason, you know, they decided, to, and, and it obviously would be driven by purely business motivations, we don't want to walk away from the, um, uh, the Russian market. If they give in on this, and by the way, you know, I don't have a lot of compassion for Apple because 
I do think competition, to Rob's point, is a, is a good thing. And, you know, having alternative uh, ways to pay something is not, not anti-competitive in my view. But we are talking about the Russian government. And, and if they give in to, if Apple gives in to Russia, what happens when Russia, uh, you know, takes a similar type of, uh, a similar type of approach to what they've done in China, which, you know, Apple has to hand over certain amounts of confidential information uh, based on the App Store, based on who they're doing business with, et cetera, et cetera, all, all the issues that American companies face when they're operating in China. That could happen, you know, and uh, I just don't think that would be a healthy thing um, for the marketplace. Rob, I'll let you kind of sum this whole thing up. Yeah, it, it is a collective action problem because, I mean, Google has done some of the same things. They also got Alexei Navalny's app out of the Play Store. Uh, they are similarly exposed, and, and Russia likes to have that influence. That they've just passed a regulation requiring companies over a certain size, foreign companies, to establish a presence, i.e., put some hostages, hostages where you can find them, and, and other countries are going to run, going to want, going to want to run that playbook. And you know, Russia, at least, unfortunately, that they, they are a large market. You know, if, if Kazakhstan wants to pull this nonsense. <laughs> Much easier for Google Apple to say uh, whatever goodbye is in Kazakh and just leave. <laughs> Harder to do that for one of the largest countries in the world and one of the biggest markets, despite the Putin regime's efforts to impoverish it. Yeah, but uh, again, and I agree with all that. I just think at the end of the day, since I have worked for some large companies, is that this is why you pay the, the CEOs the big money to make that, those type of leadership decisions. I mean, if it was all easy and just give it to the business. Um, yeah. Business incentives. Well, you know, you can just put a computer on a, in an office and let them make the decisions. I mean, these are the kind of decisions that you re it really requires moral leadership at the at the executive level. And uh, and I'm just thinking down the road. You know, if Apple gives in on this, you know, what happens? What's round two? You know, in terms of what's Russia's next level request regarding privacy, regarding information they have to share, et cetera, et cetera. But guys, listen. Thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And please don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. Thanks, guys.